Welcome once again to the Cartoonist Kayfabe Courtroom. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Guess we're going to decide to do the uh, the Stan Lee deposition uh, regarding the court case from uh, from the aughts, from the two thousands, uh, the Kirby's versus Marvel to try to get uh, ownership to retain copyright over uh, about forty five different characters, and Stan Lee is called to the uh, boardroom, sit in front of a video camera. We have a number of lawyers in the mix here. We've got about five lawyers representing Marvel. Stan Lee's own lawyers are in here, and there is uh, Mr. Toberoff, who is there uh, on behalf of the Kirby's. I th it looks like one guy. Yes. Uh, on behalf of the Kirby's, David versus Goliath, man, versus about five, six dudes uh, who are representing Marvel entities. It, it feels like if you were going to draw this up for an Aaron Sorkin film, this is how you would do it, right? Marvel rolls in with their team of attorneys versus your uh, your little guy, your single guy there uh, for the defendants. But the reason that I'm interested in this uh, and I'm so excited for it is I think this could be the definitive Stan Lee interview. Yeah. He's under oath. I mean, this thing's 100 pages long. We're not going to get through it all in, in, in today. Right. Um, but, you know, under oath and really being asked about some of the origins of Marvel Comics, uh, some of Marvel's practices, business practices, it just feels like this could be the ultimate Stan Lee interview. And uh, that's what's drawn me to these depositions to begin with, is like, they really are great comics interviews, and why not Stan Lee? You know, like, perfect subject for this kind of a treatment i think going through the thing really quick you see names man you see bill everett's name you see marty goodman's name you got to admit that uh there's nepotism or, or, <laughs> or, or, or fear of uh, perjury or something now this is not this is a deposition it's not testimony in front of a court of law i don't know that you gotta like put your hand up swear to tell the truth the whole truth nothing but the truth kind of gimmick but uh it probably behooves you to be honest when you're uh in this kind of uh scenario um, the the witness is sworn in, so I, I you know I assume that um, there's some there's some uh, something at stake if you don't tell the truth and the whole truth and the truth is as best you can recall it. Um, it is 2010, which you know I think I think Stan Lee was still in pretty good shape at that time, so there's I expect uh, lucid testimony. Yeah, you gotta cut the kayfabe in a, in a situation like this. I Man, this is serious business, and this is a media trained guy who went who very specifically chooses his words when Jonathan Ross asks him who created Spider-Man. If Steve Ditko says that he created Spider-Man, I'll allow him to believe that. Like, just saying all that kind of shit. We gotta get legit on this thing, man, and uh, if, if you're good, let me see here, yeah. If, if, if you're good, I'm happy to jump right into Let's things. Do it. We got a lot of deposition, like you said, over a hundred pages worth of stuff. It's Stan Lee, like, Stan Lee and, and Jack Kirby, how much more intro do we need to give? If you don't know who those people are and you're watching this channel, I'm confused. <laughs> Cartoonist Kayfabe subsidized by the comic books that we make. And Jimmy Rugg has Hulk Grand Design coming out in uh, 316, man. March 316 says you got to get your hands on Hulk Grand Design Monster. The following month comes Hulk Grand Design Madness. Each issue, 40 pages distilling down 500 issues of Hulk comics from 40 years into 80 pages of comics. You got to see it to believe it. I've read it multiple times. I freaking love what Jimmy's done with the material, man. Some uh, variant covers coming out with uh, the first uh, issue of Red Room. There's the Eddie P variant, Marcos Martin variant, and Peach Momoko. The Cottage Industry provides her variant cover for Jimmy's uh, Incredible Hulk grand design. Jimmy, what do you want to say about uh, this comic, man? I want to say pre-order at Kayfabers. Let's put the Kayfabe effect to good use. Let's u let's put it to effect on Hulk grand design. And now is the time to do those pre-orders. And you know what I hear from people? The pre-order system's impossible. I don't think it is. I have faith in cartoonist Kayfabe audience out there. So prove all the doubters wrong. Go to your local comic shop and let them know that you want copies of Hulk Grand Design Monster reserved for you. Do it this week at the comic shop. Thank you. Well said, man. Uh, Red Room, the anti-social network is in stores today. That's my comic. 
the comic that I'm putting my, my energies to. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game uh, in Red Room Comics. And you can see in the trade paperback, there's about 70-some pages of additional material to go along with the, uh, the body of the uh, Red Room stories. Every issue is completely self-contained. And uh, the week before Hulk Grand Design comes out, you're still going to have to hit that comic shop because trigger warnings, the next round of Red Room Comics will be hitting stores. And uh, same deal. Every issue completely self-contained. It's the Rat Queens issue that's going to be uh, put out on the stands with issue number one. A lot of people followed that comic uh, while I was serializing it on my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor. Uh, Jimmy and I both have link trees in the description below this video where you could uh, check out um, behind-the-scenes material and get a hold of these comics before they hit paper. Here's here's my Peach Momoko variant that go along uh, with, with Red Room issue number one. The Jim Rug by way of Robert Crumb Zap Comics Zero uh, homage cover for Red Room uh, Trigger Warnings number one. And kind of like a book covery book cover uh, for Red Room issue number one that I drew and that is where you get uh, the Rat Queens. By, if you take a good look at that uh, that silhouette right there. Fodder for the next silhouette zine. Lots of comics uh, coming out from the Kayfabe Studios. Uh, we Kayfabe affect a lot of comics uh, that we that we cover. Got to put the Kayfabe effect to use for ourselves, or else this channel just is not possible, man. So now that we're paying the bills, let's go back to the video. So I'll play the role of everybody who's not uh, who's not Stan Lee. You'll be Stan the man. Should I read this videographer part? That doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, we'll summarize that real quick because there is a funny Stanley comment in there. But the videographer starts just announcing this court case, the number, the the date, um, and it is May thirteenth, twenty ten. Starts at nine thirty in the morning, and then we have each of the representatives, all of the lawyers, state their name, uh, firm they're with, and who they're representing. We get to Mr. Lieberman, Arthur Lieberman, representing Stanley, and the witness, Stanley, I guess representing Stanley. So <laughs> love that. And at that point, the uh, videographer has the court reporter swear in Stanley, swear in the witness. And um, I think we're ready to go from there. Examination by Mr. Quinn, who is representing Marvel Entities. Good morning, Mr. Lee. Good morning. And we've met before, haven't we? Yes. And you know that I represent Marvel and the Marvel Entities and also Disney in connection with this matter? Yes. And I'm going to be asking you some questions today about information you may have relevant you may have relevant to the matter. Uh, you understand that? Right. You also understand that this is a deposition that's being held pursuant uh, to a court order in New York. I'm sorry, I... That the deposition is being held pursuant to a court order issued by the court. Oh yes, I understand. And you and I met before. We met yesterday? Right. And we met on at least one other previous occasion? Yes. And we talked about what knowledge you may have that would be relevant to the issues in this case. Yes, we did. Could you tell us, sir, how old are you? 87. And give us your educational background. Uh, I thought you were 88. You're a young man. Well, I'm 87 and a half, I guess. Okay, 87 and a half. I went to high school in New York City at DeWitt Clinton High School, and that's about the extent of it. And when did you graduate from DeWitt Clinton High School? You know, honest to God, I don't remember the year, but I did graduate. Okay, Fave Conjecture. Imagine being old enough that you don't remember the year you graduated. <laughs> well, you know what? He's been on the, uh, the West Coast, and I think that you don't give away any dates whenever you're in that community <laughs> that would age you. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Did you serve in the military? Yes, I was in the U.S. Army Signal Corps in World War II. And how long were you in the military? Three years. And could you briefly, or as briefly as you can, uh, tell us your employment history after you left DeWitt Clinton High School? Well, I had a lot of different jobs. I was, I wrote obituaries for a press service. I was an office boy, I was an usher. I did some advertising for the National Jewish Hospital at Denver. I never knew what I was supposed to be advertising, whether telling people to get sick to go to the hospital. But, and finally, I got a job at a place called Timely Comics, which published comic books. And approximately when was that? The late 30s, 1940s? I think it must have been 1930 or 1939 or 1940, somewhere around there. And what was your first job responsibility at Timely? 
Well, I was hired by two people, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, who were producing the comics at that time for this company, which was called Timely Comics. And? And my job was to really be an assistant. I went down and I got them their lunch sandwiches for them. And I filled their, in those days, they dipped the brushes in ink and used pencil sharpeners. And I sharpened the pencils. I erased the pages after they were finished. I did whatever an assistant or an office boy would do. And at that time, who was running or owned Timely? The man was owned by, the company was owned by a man named Martin Goodman. And he was the publisher? Yes. And did Timely, is Timely a predecessor or did Timely eventually become what we now know as Marvel? That's right. It had many different names over the years and it finally became Marvel. And do you currently do work for Marvel? Oh yes. Yes, I do. And what does that involve? Pardon me? What does that involve? What does your work involve with Marvel? Oh, mainly now I write occasional stories for them, and I do promotion and publicity for them, and whatever they ask me to do, really. I Little things that have, have to do, sometimes I do cameos in their movies, and I appear on panels at conventions, things like that. Okay, if conjecture, I love that he doesn't, can't easily explain what it is he does to draw that very massive multi-million dollar check. You recently were Larry King in Iron Man 2? Yeah, I did that too. And do you receive compensation from Marvel? Yes. Now, do you also have a company called POW? Yes, I do. That you're involved in. And what is POW? POW is an entertainment company, and what we do is we seek to produce movies, television shows, things for the internet, whatever we can in the field of entertainment. And does that company, POW, have a contractual relationship with the Disney company? Yes. they. We have a first look. See, I'm not good at the technical part of this, but it's some sort of a first look deal. Whatever we create, we show to Disney first, and hopefully they will want to make use of it. If not, then we can bring it elsewhere. And you've had that deal with them for a number of years? Yes. Going back to around mid-2006? I think so. Now, I believe uh, you just told us that you began work at, let's just call it Marvel, unless, you know, we specifically have to refer to one of the prior names around 1940 or so. About then. And then we have a Mr. Lieberman calling in. That's Stanley's. Uh... All right. Uh, just two seconds. Uh, turn the video off. Presumably, Mr. Lieberman is talking to uh, Stan Lee, Mr. Quinn. Uh, you mentioned just a few minutes ago before we took our short break that you had started as, I guess, an apprentice effectively at Timely slash Marvel around 1940. Did there come a time where you got a promotion? Yes. Tell us how that occurred. Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were really the only two people there producing the comics, and for some reason they left, and I was the only guy left in the department. So Martin asked me if I could sort of function as the editor and art director and writer until he hired someone, a grown-up, and I said, sure. You know when you're 18 years old, what do you know? I said, sure, I can do it, and I think he forgot to hire a grown-up because I was there ever since. Right. 60 years later, they still haven't hired a grown-up. I'm still waiting. But you had grown up. Uh, now, do you have an understanding at the time, or did you come to an understanding as to why Simon and Kirby were let go? I didn't know at the time, but I have heard much later from a number of different people that it had something to do with, they were supposed to have been working exclusively for Martin Goodman, and he found out they had, I think, been doing some work for some other company. Something like that. And he fired them then, in effect? I guess, yeah. Now, when you became the editor, what were your job responsibilities? Well, I was writing a lot of the stories, and I also would hire different artists to draw the stories, artists, letters, anchors, so forth. And was it your responsibility to hire the writers and other artists and anchors and so forth, uh, give them assignments? Yes. With regard to what you were going to actually be doing? Yes. Mr. Toborov, objection, leading. And that's uh, the Kirby's attorney. Okay. Uh, back to Mr. Quinn, I believe. And who oversaw, tell us a little bit about how that assignment process worked. Well, it was my job to dream up new characters or to continue with the characters we had and to pick the best artists and the best writers unless I wrote something. My, I had the privilege, which now that I think back, it was rare, but I could either write stories myself or I could hire writers. I couldn't write everything, and it was my job to hire the artists to draw the stories, and I did that for quite a number of years. And did you give instructions to the artists as to how you wanted the stories to go? Oh, yes. That was my job as art director. So in addition to writing, you were also the art director. Yes. Now, you oversaw whose responsibility was the creative editorial aspects of the comic books that were created. 
Well, the responsibility was mine because I had to answer to the publisher, Martin Goodman, and he had to be happy with what I was doing. Did you have the ability to not only make assignments, but also to credit, to edit and change things uh, that other writers and artists did in connection with the comics? Yeah, that was my job. If, for example, I saw some artwork and I felt there wasn't enough action on a page or it was confusing, the reader might not know what it was, or in a script if I felt there was too much dialogue or too little dialogue, it was up to me to make the stories as good as I could make them. Now you mentioned that you did perform services not only as editor, but also as writer. Mm -hmm. Did you consider the services you performed as a writer part of your duties as the editor or something additional? Well, I never thought of it that way. I was the editor, I was the art director, and I was also a staff writer. And how were you paid in connection with the work that you did? How was I paid? How were you paid in connection with the work as editor and as a writer? I received a salary which paid me as editor and art director, but I got paid on a freelance basis for the stories that I wrote. And when you saw you were paid on a freelance basis, how were you paid? On what basis? The same as every other writer, I was paid per page, so much money per page of script. There was a fixed amount of money? Yes. For each page? Yes. And was there a policy or did you have a policy to pay writers and artists on that per page rate, whether or not the page was actually used or published? Oh yes, even if we didn't publish, if an artist drew a 10-page story, the artist rate was $20 a page, I would put in a voucher for $200 for that artist. Now if, and this happened rarely, but if we decided not to use that story, the artist would still keep the money because he had done the work. It wasn't his fault. So, and that's the way it was. Everybody was paid per page. Now you mentioned that you had the right to edit and make changes. Was there anyone in addition to who, to, to you, who had the right to edit and make changes. Yes. In the work, who was that? Oh, my boss, Martin Goodman, though he really didn't edit. He would just call me into his office and say, geez, Stan, I, I didn't think that story was good. Do a better one next time. This book didn't sell so well. I think you better see what's wrong. Maybe it needs a new artist or a new writer. Things like that. But I did the actual detail work. Were there times where Mr. Goodman would tell you that he didn't want something to be done a certain way? Yeah. And you changed? Yes, there were. Not that often, but yes. But that was your understanding of how the process worked? Oh, absolutely. He was, he was the ultimate boss. And did he have the final say on what was published back in the 1950s and 1960s? Yes, as long as he was the publisher, he did. Did Mr. Goodman ever edit any of your work? Not too often, except every so often he'd say, I think you're putting in too much dialogue. I don't think the readers want to read that much. And... I always disagreed with him, so I would sneak in as much dialogue as I could. Now, was this pretty much the practice that existed at Marvel beginning when you started as editor in the early 1940s and then up through the time that you became publisher in late 1960s? Kirby's lawyer, vague and ambiguous. You can answer. Yes. And did this process of assignment and so forth come to be known as the Marvel method? Oh, no, no. The Marvel method referred to something else. Okay, why don't you describe the Marvel method? There was a time when I was writing so many stories that I couldn't keep up with the artist. I couldn't feed them enough work. And you see, the artists were freelancers. Now, for example, if Jack was working on a story and Steve was waiting for me to give him a story because he had finished what he had been doing... Jack being Jack Kirby? Jack Kirby. And Steve Ditko. Right. Or I, it could have been any of the artists... But just using them as an example, if one of them was waiting for a story while I was still finishing writing the story for the other one, I could keep him waiting because I couldn't keep him waiting because he wasn't making money. He was a freelancer. He wasn't on salary. So I would say, look, Steve, I don't have time to write your script for you, but this is the idea for the story. I'd like this fill in and I'd like this to happen. And in the end, the hero ends by doing this. You go ahead and draw it any way you want to, as long as you keep to that main theme. And I will keep finishing Jack's story. And when you finish drawing this one, I will put in all the dialogue and the captions. So in that way, I could keep one artist working while I was finishing something for another artist. That worked out so well that I began doing that with just about all the artists. I would just give them an idea for a story, let them draw it any way they wanted to, because no matter how they drew it, even if they didn't do it as well as I might have wanted, I was conceited enough to think I could fix it up by the way I put the dialogue and captions in. And I'd make sense out of it, even if they may have made, uh, have, have done something wrong. 
And I was able to keep a lot of artists busy at the same time by using that system. And I have never given that long an explanation before. <laughs> did you end up using that system? And when did this come into play? In the 1950s and 60s, approximately? Probably the 50s. During the time that you were the editor? I was always the editor. Until the late 1960s when you became publisher. Right. And in that process, did you always maintain the ability to edit and make changes or reject what the other writers or artists had created? Oh, sure. And did you do that on a regular basis? If something had to be rejected, sure. And that would include artwork that was done by, for example, Jack Kirby? Yeah. And do you recall instances where that occurred? It's a strange thing. I didn't recall it, recall those instances too well, but I was talking to John Romita once. He was one of our artists. And we were talking about whether I had ever rejected any pages. And I said, sometimes, I, I can't remember. And he said, Stan, don't you remember? Sometimes if somebody wanted a job as an inker at our place, and an inker is somebody who goes over the pencil drawings with ink so they can be reproduced better at the engraver, he said, if we wanted to test an inker to see how good he'd be, we would take one of the pages of Jack's that you hadn't used and ask the inker to ink over them as samples. And I had forgotten about that. But John Romita, we were talking about that. It was a few years ago he told me that. And when you had a conversation with Mr. Romita, did that refresh your recollection that you had from time to time rejected pages from Jack Kirby? Yeah, actually probably less from Kirby than anybody else because he was so good. But I had. There were times when things had to be rejected for a myriad reasons. Let me mark uh, as Lee Exhibit 1 an affidavit. Uh, it's a document entitled Affidavit of Stan Lee and ask you to take a look at that. Kirby's lawyer, I would like to make a standing objection uh, if you will agree. Otherwise, I have to make it each time that, that we were produced. None of the documents uh, you're using as exhibits in this deposition they could have all been produced prior to this deposition to the defendants, and they were not. So that's a standing objection. And then the Marvel lawyer says, we're following. Just I don't want to make a long statement here. We're following the federal rules in connection with our response to your document request. We, of course, had asked you to make document requests months ago, and you didn't. So you have your standing objection, and we can move on. Such dickish chess playing going on there. Yeah, and it's for what? $4 billion that they're... Uh... <laughs> I do love hearing the Marvel method described by Stan Lee. Yeah. That, that is, again, part of the reason I was so interested to get into this, and, and hopefully that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I'm, and I'm such a mark that, like, you know, I've never been to debate class or stuff like that. Like, I could read stuff and just believe this the shit, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, it seems like a good... Yeah, it's more... I, I, I get it. I get it. I'd be such a mark. Don't ever put me on a jury. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting in that, like, we can criticize it or say the writers deserve less credit or, you know, somebody deserves more credit. But you kind of look at it historically as, like, proof's in the pudding, right? I mean, that system did produce boxes of comics. We're sitting here talking about comics, and, and a lot of it comes from that system and the work that came out of that era. So... I don't know. It's 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 interesting. Like part of what I love about comics is that Jack Kirby tells a story differently than Steve Ditko, different than John Romita, and that system is what allows those guys to have like the storytelling part of it. You, so you might you might get Fantastic Four, you might get Spider Man, but maybe you ain't getting Tales to Astonish, and you ain't getting Avengers, and you ain't getting X Men and stuff like that. If if uh, the energy is not spread spread thin in that way, uh, Kirby's lawyer. Since you responded, I need to respond to what you said. <laughs> You offered on multiple occasions to produce those documents prior to any depositions on an expedited basis. In fact, you sought the expedited de deposition of Stanley on the basis that you would produce documents uh, to us on an expedited basis. Uh, but when push comes to shove and we scheduled a deposition with more than enough opportunity, but you failed to produce the documents... So you will agree that this is a standing objection so we don't have to go through this every time? Marvel lawyer... Definitely, you have your standing objection, Kirby's lawyer. Thank you, Marvel lawyer. Uh, I totally disagree, given the fact that you were rejected over and over again our offer. But in any event, let's move on and save time. Okay, now could you take a look at the last page of the document entitled Affidavit of Stanley? It's a page of the affidavit, and is that your signature? Yes. And have you had an opportunity in the last day or so to review this affidavit? I'd have to refresh my memory. Go ahead and refresh your recollection again. 
That's right. And having reviewed the affidavit, is there anything in the affidavit, as far as you know today, that's inaccurate or wrong? No, I don't think so. It's all truthful? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Sure. About some of the things that's in the affidavit. Uh, you just testified a little while ago about the process that you utilized in connection with making assignments and so forth. And paragraphs, I guess, and of this affidavit also describe the same methodology. In paragraph, it doesn't give a number. In paragraph of the affidavit, it reads, oh, you know what, This might there might be some redaction. I, I was reading on the on Daniel's best uh, um, blog spot that there might be some redacted spot. So maybe something as simple as that might be redacted. Anyhow, um, uh, I would just read and you can follow along. It says, timely, uh, that would be Marvel. However, always maintain the right to direct the storylines and the right to edit any aspect of the materials I submitted for publication, including the characteristics of any existing or new characters I utilize in the story. Now, would that also be true in regard to other writers and artists? Wait. That Marvel maintained the right to direct the storylines. Oh, yes. The artist, and it held for the artist and the writers and the letters and the inkers and the colorists and everybody. And the next, next sentence says, at the same time, it was typical in the industry for comic book publishers to own the rights to the material that were created for them for publication. Yes. And that was your understanding? Yes. At the time? Yes. And that you continued through the time that you stopped being an editor in the late 1960s? Yes. So that would include the period of the 1950s and 60s? Yes. And it further goes on that... And that would apply not only to things that you created, but also to things that were created by other writers and artists like Jack Kirby. Yes, that's right. And that was the understanding in the industry at the time? That was my understanding. And it goes on to say that Timely, referring to Marvel, would own whatever rights exist to all the materials I cre created or co-created for publication. That was your understanding? Yes, it was. And that was your understanding, not only with regard to materials you created, but were created by the other writers and artists who were working under your direction? Yes. And do you ever recollect, going back to that period of time, uh, anyone, uh, any of the other writers or artists disagreeing or telling you they didn't, they didn't agree with that? During this period of time, no. Now, in paragraph 11, there is a reference to a Schedule A that's attached to this affidavit. And it says that uh, a list of some of the characters I created or co-created for Marvel Timely appeared on Schedule A. And to the best of your knowledge, is that a list of some of the characters that you either created or co-created? Yes. And looking at the paragraph of the affidavit, it states, uh, I will read it for the record. For years, I, being you, received checks from Timely and its successor that bore a legend acknowledged that, acknowledging that the payment was for work for hire. Do you recall that statement? Do you recall that's a true statement, right? Yes, it is. And do you recall that that was the practice at the time? Yes, it was. And was that the practice not only with respect to you, but with all writers and artists? Oh, yes. And that would include Mr. Kirby? Yes, everybody. Do you remember a woman who worked for Marvel back at the time by the name of Millie Sheriff? There was a Millie. I think she was in the bookkeeping department. I never knew her last name or I don't remember it. Lee Exhibit 2, marked for identification. I'm going to mark an affidavit as Lee 2. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about the affidavit. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to point you to paragraph 7, which is on the second page of the affidavit. And it says, Miss Sheriff says that all of the writing and drawing for the comic books uh, was done on a work made for hire basis. That was your understanding? Yes. Consistent? And uh, then it says, paragraph 8, that the work-for-hire language was affixed to each freelancer check by way of an ink stamp. Is that consistent with your recollection? Yes, yes. Okay, uh, that's all I have on that. Let me go back for a second. Uh, for a second to you mentioned uh, the fact that writers and artists during this period of time were paid on a per-page rate. That's right. And were different artists and different writers paid different rates? Oh, yes. According to how valuable we thought they were. And did it matter? Let's take a particular artist. Oh, say Jack Kirby. <laughs> uh, did it matter whether he was Mr. Kirby? Uh, was Mr. Kirby one of the higher page rates? He got the highest page rate. I considered him our best artist. And 
and with regard to his page rate, he got that page rate whether or not uh, the actual drawings were ultimately published. Oh, yes. Most of them were. They were practically all published. And yeah, he always, I made sure he got the highest rate. Now, did it matter? He always got, he got the highest rate, but he got the same rate, whether it was Fantastic Four or for the Hulk or for, in other words, he wasn't paid a different rate based on the characters. As far as I can remember, he wasn't paid a different rate. I wouldn't swear to it because there may, I, I don't remember ever giving him a different rate. Let me put it that way. That's what I'm asking, uh, your best recollection. Yeah. That's your best recollection? Right. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions, general questions, about the kind of creation of a comic book. Um, and perhaps nobody knows it better than you, in general terms, and let's focus on the period of 1950s and 60s, which is a relevant period in this case. What was, I'd like, I'd like you to tell us the role of the different contributors to a comic book. The writer, the artist, penciler, the inker, the colorist, the letterer. What did each guy do, or woman, if there were any? Well, somebody has to come up with the idea for the script itself. Then it has to be written. So the first thing that happens is you either get a script by the writer, or in my case, you'd get an outline saying what the story is. Then it would go to the penciler, who would draw the script in pencil, then it would go to the letterer who would letter the dialogue balloons and the captions in ink over the pencil drawings. Mm -hmm. Then it would go to the inker who would ink the pencil drawings. So now the page had the lettering and the artwork done in ink so that it could go to the engraver and he could photograph it or whatever he did with it. Then in those days, we would get back from the engraver some sheets of paper, 8 by 10 usually, that were called silver prints. And there was a silver print for each page and they would go to the colorist who would use some kind of aniline dye paints and they would color the pages which were then sent back to the engraver or the printer i was never sure but to tell that person how we wanted it colored when it was printed the engraver and or printer used those colored sheets as a guide to uh, so they would know how to color the pages kayfabe conjecture piece when uh jim shooter becomes editor-in-chief at marvel these silver print things at the time cost about two dollars per book. So each page is two bucks. And that was the practice because of just inertia, just sure. this thing over time. And he's crunching the numbers. You know, this is this is a Jim Shooter story. Crunching the numbers and is like Xeroxes cost two pennies. And we gotta use these two dollar things. Started to do the Xerox thing. He said that the colorists hated it. But uh, I've I've used this kind of paper because that's like the photostat paper. It's almost like softer like f photograph paper in a way like it's like that that heavy texture that it it feels like imagine the the ink and stuff like sitting on top of it rather than absorbing like when they started using the paper and it could be absorbed and you know the dyes could be absorbed uh it did make things go quick because it's just a guide it's not the painted yeah, right. thing that people are seeing that's so interesting i've never i've never heard that i've never thought about that and now it makes me want to buy like some of the color guides you know we collect original art or we look at original art those color guides float around yeah. now it makes me curious to buy like some color guides from different eras and see the paint and the and the, and the inks and stuff on it that's yeah, funny yeah those old ones probably never leave their their offices man two dollars a clip you, you also man like you don't get too many redos before they go get another colorist. That's true. And also, um, this is a time period whenever original art is routinely destroyed. So uh, probably not a lot of those color guides surviving past the, the return trip to the printer or the engraver. Exactly. Back to the game. Uh, right. Actually do the printing. And that's. I think that's all. There was the writer, the penciler, the letterer, the inker, the colorist. Of course, we had proofreaders and sometimes we would make changes. I, as the editor, were often look over a page and say, I don't like this drawing, let's fix it, or let's make this a long shot, not a close-up, or, you know, whatever I would do. I didn't do that too much because it cost us money and it wasted time, so only when it had to be done. Now, were all these people working in the same room? No. How did that work? No, usually the production people were the people who made the paste-ups. Right. But very often the artists worked at home. We did a lot of shipping things around. We would, I would talk on the phone or in person to the artist giving, or I would type out an outline depending on how we worked. And the artist usually went home and penciled it, bring it into me. I would approve it or not approve it or have what changes needed to be made. Then I would send it to the inker. We very rarely had an inker who was really on staff. At a different address, the inker would do it and ship it back to me. And if I liked it, usually it was okay. It would then go to a letterer. 
Now, often the letterers were on staff, but we also had a number of letterers who worked at home. In fact, our main letterers, Sam Rosen and Artie Simic, they both worked at home, so we had to ship the artwork again. They would letter it, bring it back. We had a colorist who worked on staff, but we also had colorists who worked at home. So again, it either was done on staff or we shipped it. We were always moving and shipping things back and forth. There was no FedEx back then? No FedEx, no. It was very difficult. And we had a small staff really in the office, usually one letterer who would make corrections on things. And sometimes one of the people also did coloring, but mostly everything was done freelance and shipped around the city. Now you mentioned all the different books involved, but you mentioned uh, first somebody had to come up with the idea. Yeah. Was that your rule for the most part? Pretty much, yeah. And, and after you would come up with the idea, how would you communicate the idea to the writer, or, or in some cases you were the writer, but a different writer or the artist? Well, we would meet and I would talk about it, and I would usually have, well, often have something. I'd write out a brief outline of what the idea was. A synopsis? A synopsis. Or sometimes I would just talk it with the artist. It really depended on how well I knew the artist, how well we worked together, how familiar we were with each other's style. Now, typically, who came up with the ideas for stories at Marvel during the 50s and 60s? Well, in the 50s, in the early 50s, we were doing a lot of odd books. And very often, the writers of those odd books would come up with their own, although I did most of them. In the 60s, the ideas for the new characters originated with me because that was my responsibility. And what would happen is the publisher, Martin Goodman, for example, with the Fantastic Four, he called me into his office one day and he said, I understand that National Comics, which later changed its name to DC, but I understand that National Comics has a book called The Justice League and it's selling very well. I want you to come up with a team of superheroes. Let's do something like that. So it was my responsibility to come up with such a team. And I dreamed up the Fantastic Four and I wrote a brief outline. And at that time, you know, I gave that to Jack Kirby who did a wonderful job on it. With the Hulk and the X-Men and Iron Man, I couldn't, I wanted to use Jack for everything, but I couldn't because he was just one guy. So with Iron Man, I gave the script to Don Heck after I came up with the idea. With Daredevil, I gave that to Bill Everett. I think with Iron Man, I still wanted Jack to do the cover, though, for it. With Spider-Man, that was kind of an interesting thing. I thought Spider-Man would be a good strip, so I wanted Jack to do it, and I gave it to him. And I said, Jack, now you always draw these characters so heroically, but I don't want this guy to be too heroic looking. He's kind of a nebbish guy. Would we call him a nerd today? I would say so, yeah. Anyway, Jack, who glamorizes everything, even though he tried to nerd him up, the guy looked still a little bit too heroic for me. So I said, all right, forget it, Jack. I will give it to somebody else. Jack didn't care. He had so much to do. Who did you give it to? I gave it to Steve Ditko. His style was really more really what Spider-Man should have been. So Steve did the Spider-Man thing. Although, again, I think I had Jack sketch out a cover for it because I always had a lot of confidence in Jack's covers. When the covers were done, were they done before or after the actual work was created? You know, I don't think there was a hard and fast rule for that. I really can't remember. I think you'd have to, you'd have had to have done some of the work first. So in doing the cover, you knew what the characters looked like. And did you, and did you take particular interest in the cover? Oh, that was my specialty. The covers in those days, the covers were the most important thing because we didn't have fans the way we do now. Today, fans go to a bookstore. Did the latest Fantastic Four come in yet? In those days, we sold according to how attractive a book looked on the newsstand. A kid would walk in the newsstand and whatever caught his eye, he'd pick up. So we made sure, and this was something that my publisher, Martin Goodman, he was an expert in. He taught me a lot about what to do a cover to make it stand out, what kind of color schemes to use and so forth. So I paid a lot of attention to covers. They were very important. And you'd make changes in covers. Oh, sure. And you mentioned that you thought uh, that Kirby actually did the cover uh, on Spider-Man. What was the cover he did was based on the original drawings or was it based on what Ditko had done? Oh, it would have to have been based, I think, on what Ditko did because it would have it would have to look like the Spider-Man. The nerdy Spider-Man? I would think so. Well, as Spider-Man, he didn't look nerdy. He looked nerdy as Peter Parker, yeah. Fair enough. Now you mentioned that you have would have meetings from time to time, I guess plotting conferences. Do you recall, and let me mark as, we'll mark, actually two documents, although they're related, an article that was written by a man by the name of Nat Friedland in the New York Herald Tribune dated January 19th, 1966. Do you recall that article? I'm going to show you copies of it. 
Let's mark this as Lee 4 and Lee 3. I hate that article. <laughs> I'm only going to ask you about one part of it. In the reprint, there's a reference, and I will just read it on the record that says that, quote, the plotting conference at the end of this article was for Fantastic Four number 55, end quote. FF would be Fantastic Four, right? Right. Number 55 and issued uh, just after the most prolific period of new character creation on the series, end quote. Uh, I want you to take a look at the end of this article, either one. Yeah, that's the one. And specifically, there is a paragraph that begins right here, Mr. Lee pointing, that starts, uh, Mr. Lee arrives at his plots in sort of ESP sessions with the <laughs> artist. He inserts the dialogue after the picture layout comes in, and, and then it goes on. Here he is in action at the weekly Friday morning summit meeting with Jack King Kirby, a veteran comic artist, a man who created many of the visions of your childhood and mine. Then it goes on for the next several paragraphs just to describe the plotting conference. I want to just ask you whether, in fact, this is consistent with your recollection of how typically typical plotting conferences would be, uh, would go back in the late period in the late 60s. Well, pretty much, except this is written by somebody who I don't know why, but he must have taken a very unfair dislike to Jack. And it is so derogatory. It's just terrible the way he pictured Jack in this article. I can't tell you how badly I felt. At any rate, this is the way the conferences went. Very often, Jack would say more than, mm-hmm. You know, he might contribute something, or he might say, Stan, let's also do this or do that. I mean, we had conversations, but aside from that, yes, we would get together. I would tell Jack the main idea that I wanted, and then we would talk about it, and he'd come up with something. And that was fairly typical of how a plotting conference would go? Yeah, in that sense, yeah. Now, during the period of time that you've been testifying about, did Marvel ever buy work that was created by one of the writers or freelancers on spec as opposed to having the material being part of an assignment that you would give him? Not that I remember. Excuse me, you know, they may have made deals I don't know about. I'm just asking. But nothing that I remember, right. In your recollection. Right having been there all that period of time. Right. Now, when you would give out an assignment, how did that work? Did you give them deadlines? How did? Yeah, every strip has a deadline because these books had to go out every month, and it was very important that the deadline be met because if a book was late, we had already paid the printer for that press time, and if the book wasn't delivered in time, we still had to pay the printer. So it was a total loss for us. So the deadlines were very important, and the artist always knew this has to be delivered by thus and such a date. Now, in connection with the way that artists and freelancers were paid, did they get paid whether or not a particular book or comic was successful? Oh, sure. They were paid before the book went on sale. We didn't know how successful it would be. They were paid when they delivered the artwork. Did you ever have any discussions with Mr. Goodman about what his investment and his risk was in the context of being a publisher? Yeah, once in a while, I remember there was one time some artists had wanted an increase in their page rate, and they felt they weren't getting paid enough. And Martin was in a pretty gloomy mood that day, and he said to me, you know what they don't realize? They don't realize the risk that I'm taking, because if the books don't sell, it costs. I lose a lot of money, and I have no guarantee the books will sell, and we have periods for month after month after month where I'm losing money where the books don't sell, but I don't cut their rate. I don't fire them. I try to keep going as much as possible. And he gave me this whole thing from the publisher's point of view. And did you understand that point of view? Well, yeah, I could understand it from his point of view. I could understand it, yes. Just to add to that, he said he was the fellow taking all the risks. That's the thing that he stressed. Let me go back to the covers for a second. Uh, now, who typically designed the covers for the comic books? How did that process work? I usually almost always would say what I wanted the cover to be. Sometimes I'd make a little thumbnail sketch. I'm no great artist, but I would just indicate where I wanted the character. Because, as I said, we considered the covers the most important part of the book. And I was very careful about the covers. And I would say what the illustration should be, where I wanted the caption, where I wanted a blurb, how I wanted, whether I wanted a close-up or a long shot, whether I wanted it to be an action scene or just a dramatic scene, that I spent a lot of time on that. And after you'd give direction, were the covers done before or after the pencils were complete? Uh, didn't. Uh, it could have been either way. Either way, and did you ever reject a cover and ask him to go back and redo it? Oh, sure. 
Now, you mentioned also the practice uh, was to pay writers, artists, and other anchors and so forth on a per-page basis, and they had different rates and so forth. During that period of time that you were there, were artists and writers, or did they ever get royalties from Marvel for the work they did, uh, or was it just per page? While I was there, I don't remember any royalties. Is this a good time to take a break? We've been going for an hour. I think it's a very good time. The cameras go off at 10.29 a.m. And uh, for us, I think that's a good place to to leave this episode, man. Uh, reasonably meaty substance for, from the jump, dude. And I don't see that uh, lessening up, man. This is going to be a very good series of comics history. And you might be right, man. This might be the quintessential Stan Lee interview. I remember asking Gary Groth and uh, Eric Reynolds, would there ever be a uh, comics journal interview with Stan Lee? Uh, they both said almost simultaneously, that's a non-starter. Would never happen. Wow. Yeah, I mean... They not came... on their part, by the way. You know, it's, it's Stan Lee is instructed not to be dealing with the outsiders like that. Makes total sense, right? I mean, it's such a contentious thing. And the 80s were, like, kind of this court of public opinion of, in terms of Marvel versus Kirby. Stan Lee was with Marvel. Um, you know, we, we saw last session with Jim Shooter versus, you know, as a Marvel representative versus Comics Journal and, and some of the uh, journalism and publications around that. I can totally understand it. I mean, these are complex is probably the nicest thing to say about these things. And I can see why you would not want Stanley on record, especially with guys who clearly came down on the side against Marvel uh, in the Comics Journal. But yeah, I love this Everything we've gotten so far, I love the step-by-step, -step. just walking through the practical part of creating the comics or doing the, uh, you know, the plotting versus, you know, the Marvel method, all good stuff. Um, it's interesting to me, like, listening to the shuffling of, like, the pencilers would send in their pages and we would ship those to an inker or ship those to a letterer. Uh, combined with the monthly schedule and the demand of how, like, the books had to be at the printer. It was scheduled. No flexibility, zero flexibility. And meanwhile, you've got stuff being shipped around, ha half a dozen hands touching an average comic book page, and you've got to run all those trains on time because you're not doing one monthly book. You're doing a whole publication, a whole line of monthly books. It's, it's, it's wild. And for Stan Lee not to remember specific things, I mean... I'll Anybody out there, exactly. It's the most confusing thing on earth. You're writing a story now. You're proofing a story from two weeks ago that's going to the printer next week. You're looking at printed comics that you did three months ago. Of course. A guy gets a cold and is a day late but still is, is sort of technically on time. If you express mail the thing to Connecticut to go to the engraver or something. So now you have to use like even a different mail service and that's more expensive but it's still technically ahead of time. There's, there's definitely a lot of spinning plates when it comes comes to that game. And sure, man, Martin Goodman is right. Like, he is taking a, a risk. When you are at the, the sort of at the top of that game and you're the one putting the thing out, things could uh, stand or fall. And it's your dime that fronted all of that. Yeah, it, it's interesting to think about that in connection with, say, like traditional book publishing where you have an advance against royalties to sort of mitigate that risk, but also if you do Spider-Man and it takes off, you get paid really well for it. So, uh, you know, eventually comics do adopt royalties, but not in the 50s and 60s, the time period that, we've, that we're talking about here. It takes but a whole other 20 years. All of this, I love it. This is so much fun for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing too controversial yet, man, but I think we're gonna get there. And uh, there, you know, in, in reference to the idea of like a Stan Lee Comics Journal interview, these guys are pulling out interviews for this, for this testimony and questioning Stan Lee about that. So you got to be careful. Like, I wonder if that Son of Origins is going to come out here where Stan Lee explicitly says that, you know, Silver Surfer is a Jack Kirby invention. You know, like, is that stuff going to be a part of this? Yeah. And... You know, it's 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 a it's a strange business. Comics. We we talk a lot about the inequities of the history of comics, but I've had people talk about how many relationships break down in comics, and it and it makes me think about Stanley and Kirby. You know, at this point, Kirby's been dead, died in the early '90s, almost 20 years when Stanley's giving this testimony, and for all the 
acrimony between them, this is what Stan Lee's known for. You know, I would think he would recognize like, man, that was the partner. You know, you, you think of the legacy and, and you really can't have one of them without the other and certainly not Stan Lee without Kirby. And you just wonder like the relationships that don't survive comics like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to a certain extent, like it, it, it makes sense because uh, it's that it's that like um, success has bears many fathers or whatever. Uh, you, that ego thing might happen. Like I'm the reason why this was successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hear it so often. You know, I, I heard it recently in regards to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons on Watchmen. And it's because we talked to Dave Gibbons and he's reading, you know, the amazing scripts. But then it's like, here's the panel with no words that you're capturing three paragraphs in an expression. Who gets credit for that? It's impossible to divide it, but it's inevitable that we do that. Like, as long as I've been a comics into comics, you see these arguments about who gets what credit. And really, like, it's a terrible question because it's impossible to divide up credit. There's, there's that old thought exercise about... Um you know, a, a ship is at sea, it's taking on water, uh, they change, change uh, one plank at a time to the point where every single plank is completely new from the time it's set off. When it lands, wherever it's going, is it the same ship? And that is a thought exercise that you could spin many different kinds of answers, and there is no real answer, but the person there on the couch, they're an audience, they have a very firm opinion, you know about uh, who was what and we will see those opinions in the comment section <laughs> yes yeah, directly sure. below this video jimmy you ready to get out of here yeah, man? man we're gonna good. do this again uh same time next week man with part two the stanley deposition just getting good with that stuff man kayfabers like follow subscribe to the youtube channel hit the bell we'll notify you when new vids are available what's out there jimmy hulk grand design monster comes into your comic book shop march 16th 316 mark your calendar but more importantly go to your local comic shop and pre-order a copy of hulk grand design monster uh pre-order four of them there there are four total covers that you can choose from they're not retailer incentives so pick the cover that you want it is a perfect comic for someone who's never read a hulk comic it's the perfect comic for someone whose favorite character is the hulk it basically tells the uh, history of the hulk in a condensed uh perfect for a new reader perfect to pick up uh, on the spot kind of story very concise and hopefully with some graphic flair so get to your local comic shop apply the kayfabe effect to hulk grand design monster who created the hulk again <laughs> we're gonna find out here right red room the anti-social network is in stores today that's the trade paperback version of season one of red room comics uh but we're into season two man it's 2022 so we keep productive here in the kayfabe studios and our comics uh our this youtube channel is sort of made possible by the comics that we sell. So Brought to you by our comics. It's goddamn right, man. So Trigger Warnings is the second season, the new season of Red Room Comics. Issue one is coming out March 9th. That's the week before Hulk Grand Design. March is Cartoonist Kayfabe Month in the comic shops, man, with two with two uh, solid, solid hits I like that. coming out, man. Uh, Go to your comic shop, get it put on your pull list. Every issue completely self-contained. Uh, if you want to read the comics ahead of time, go to my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor. Three bucks get you the archive there. Over 200 pages worth of stuff. And we have link trees in the description below this video where you can get to all that content. Uh, what else do we have, Jimmy? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. That's a wrap, man. Give them those marching orders. We're going to be on our way. Read more comics.